This morning, we will be in the book of Titus, the letter to Titus, if you will. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. We've done a brief Christmas series called The Christ of the Carols. We've been looking at who Jesus is, what child it is that we celebrate on Christmas, and what king that the angels declared that night in Bethlehem. And now, as we finish the Christmas season, as we end another year, I want us to consider our response to the king who came. This morning, I want to draw our attention to a text that's quite quite possibly, quite literally, the most concise explanation of the gospel and all of its implications. And my hope is that looking at Titus chapter 2, that we'll leave this morning, we'll leave this year, we'll enter into tomorrow and the next year with one constant ringing, one constant call in our lives, and that is to come adore our King. That's my goal this morning, is that we will leave this text adoring our king. So, if you would, look with me at Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I don't know about you, but this last week, I watched the greatest Christmas movie ever made. Definitively, objectively, the greatest Christmas movie ever made. It's a Wonderful Life. That's right. There we go. There we go. Good. If you're not familiar, apparently we are all familiar, but if you're not familiar, I want to give you a basic snapshot of the plots of this cinematic genius. Now, there will be some spoilers, but the movie was made in 1947, so that's on you. If this spoils anything, that's on you. So in the movie, it centers around the main character, George Bailey. George is a self-sacrificing man. He gives himself, he gives his wealth, he gives up his dreams for those around him. He never gets to go after his dreams because he is busy and more concerned with taking care of and fulfilling his responsibilities to his family and his community. Then you have the bad guy, Mr. Potter. Like vinegar in your mouth to say his name. This guy is older, not that being old is bad, but he's an older man who's very angry, and he's given his whole life, instead of serving others, he serves himself. 
He's given his whole life to try to take over the town in which they live in. He's bought out the bank, he's bought out businesses, and he's trying to buy out George's business himself. His character, or lack thereof, is highlighted then, kind of is the main problem in the movie, in that George has this inept uncle that has some other issues as well, and he puts $8,000 in Mr. Potter's lap on accident, which is about $110,000 to $113,000 today, just so we're clear what $8,000 means in 1947. And Mr. Potter's character is really revealed, because what he does is he just kind of tucks it away and keeps it, knowing that this will destroy George Bailey. It will destroy him. Why? Because if $8,000 is missing from his company, which is a bank, a building alone, he's going to prison because it's fraud. Now, we love George. We have compassion for him. Our hearts go out to him, his stress and his fear. We love George, which is why at the end of this movie, spoiler alert, George is saved. The whole city pitches in and chips in and, and shows him so much love and charity, saving him. There is not a dry eye in the audience when you're watching It's a Wonderful Life at the very end. If you're not crying, then something is wrong with you. It is beautiful. And why is it beautiful? Because acts of love draw out of our hearts love. They cause our hearts to swell with love. It's true in our own lives. When we reflect on the self-giving love of Christ for us, when we see and we're reminded of his love, our hearts leap for joy and in love and adoration of him. We love because he first loved us. Not we might love, we do love, we will love because we've seen and received his love. His display of love causes our hearts to swell with love for him. And so last week, Pastor Dan asked the question, what child is this? And he gave us 10 words or reasons from Colossians chapter 1 on who Jesus is. And each one of these reasons is reasons enough to adore Jesus. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at one specific aspect. I want to ask, why should we adore him? Why should we adore him? And I think out of all those 10 reasons, this reason, we'll give it a number 11 for the whole series together, this reason drills in on, it is the greatest catalyst for our adoration of Jesus. Here in our text, we find, as I said earlier, a concise but also a beautiful explanation of the gospel and all of its results. We see the saving sanctifying, and hope-giving power of God's grace. We see the depths of Jesus' own love for us, and that's why it is fuel for our heart's love and adoration of him. If our love is a response to his love, then we need to rightly understand his love, and we need to remember it. Many things in life distract us from it. They blur it, as we said earlier before our confession, they blur our vision of who he is and his love for us. So going into this new year, I want us to look at this text, and I hope that we come back to this text to see his love regularly throughout the year. My hope is that this, heart, this sermon would warm the hearts that have grown cold, 
that it would re- redirect the hearts that have gone off course, and that it would fan the heart that is already burning with love to burn brighter. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the text, and we're going to break it into four works of grace worthy of adoration. Four works of grace worthy of adoration. So let's look at the first work of God's grace by looking at verse 11. And here we see that God's grace saved us. Look back at the text with me. We read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. When we read this verse, we really read it slowly and think about it, it kind of strikes us as strange. The grace of God appeared. We don't normally use grace as a thing, a noun, that appears. We might use it as something maybe we show or we give, or maybe that person walks with grace, which I don't understand that phrase actually. But we we don't use it as a thing that appeared. So we do need to ask, what does it mean that grace appeared? And with that, well, we need to ask, what is grace? Generally speaking, Grace is undeserved kindness or good from God to man. In the Bible, generally, we'll understand it as undeserved kindness or good from God to man. And that kindness is shown in a couple of ways. First, it can be general. Sometimes we call this common grace. Such as, you have taste buds and chocolate tastes really good. That is common grace. The deliciousness of chocolate milkshakes and the taste buds to enjoy it. Common grace. That is a goodness and a kindness done by God, the creator of you, to you. But this is nothing new. This isn't something that appeared. This has been true forever. Cain's children in Genesis enjoyed the arts and enjoyed technology and enjoyed the development of culture, just like Seth's children. The wicked and the righteous have had their fields rained on since the fall. This is common. This isn't something that appeared. To what grace appeared? Well, on Christmas, the first Christmas, a person appeared. The person Jesus appeared, and when Jesus was born on that night in Bethlehem, the grace of God shone into the darkness. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, is what John writes in his gospel account. And what he says about the word who became flesh, he says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, We have all received grace upon grace. At the birth of Jesus, the grace of God appeared. Jesus is the grace of God. This means that our salvation is personal. Friends, we talk about grace all the time, and we don't think about it as a face. It is a person. It is Jesus God didn't just send a letter of pardon and saying, okay, you're forgiven. He didn't send an angel and say, the angel can be the sacrifice for you. He sent himself to be our 
grace. And then just think about the word appeared. The text doesn't say that the grace of God was asked for. The grace of God was deserved. It appeared. It appeared. Unwanted and unmerited. Jesus' coming was unmerited. In no sense did we or do we deserve to have the eternal Son of God come into our world, take on our weakness, and to die in our place. And it was un- he was unwanted. What else does John say in his gospel account? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He was unwanted. We want a king, but we, want, we don't want this king. We want a king to free us from whatever struggles we face in life. For the Jews in Jesus' day, it was Rome. They wanted a king that would take over Rome for them, that would wage war on Rome so that they would be freed from worldly oppression. But Jesus is the king that they utterly, and that we utterly, desperately need because he's the king that brings freedom from our true oppression. He brings salvation for all people. When Jesus came, he didn't just come to teach. He was a great teacher, but he didn't come just to teach. When he came, he didn't just come to heal and to feed. Those are great merciful acts, but that's not why he came. He came to die in our place. He came to earn the righteousness we cannot. We do not live how God has told us to. We disobey God. We live for ourselves, and he came to live for God. So he earned our right standing before God, and then he died as if he had not. He died for our wrong standing before God, saying, I die for them. He came unmerited, unwanted, and bringing the unbelievable gift of salvation. And he brought it to all people, friends. This does not mean all people are saved. It means that there is no ethnic boundary to the grace of God. It means that you Gentile and you Gentile, and essentially more than likely all of us Gentiles in this room, are saved. We are children of God because Jesus has come for us. Uncalled for and undeserved, Jesus came. He appeared to give us salvation. So why should we adore Jesus? Because he's the grace of God. In his face is the smile of the Father upon all who receive him. The blessing that Aaron would say over the people in the Old Testament, sometimes we use it as our benediction here. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That blessing is not just nice words. They're not hopeful words. They are true, they is a true reality for all of those who have received Jesus. He is the one who has brought that blessing. He is the grace that comes from the face of God. So when you receive Jesus, the face of God is looking upon you and being gracious to you. He is the one who brought peace with God. He's the great reconciler. Pastor Dan preached that last week. It is by the blood of his cross 
that we are reconciled back to God. It is the face of God that shines upon us in Jesus in his grace. It is the face of God that shines upon us in Jesus that gives us peace with God. We adore Jesus because he appeared and he brought us salvation. That's the first work of grace. The second work of grace is in verse 12. Look with me back at the text. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We saw that the grace of God has come and saved us. Now, sometimes we stop there. But the grace of God has come and saved us to also train us. And this is a reason to adore him as well. The concept of God's grace, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, is sometimes thought of, accused of, of leading to lawlessness. Well, you're saved by grace, so there's nothing you're going to do that's going to unsave you. Well, actually, theologically, that is true. But it doesn't mean give you a license to go sin, either. Paul has no room for that. This text has no room for someone who says, I've been saved by grace, so I just do what I want. No, it's I've been saved by grace, and I am being sanctified by grace as well. I am being trained by grace. The grace that saves us, as one pastor titled a sermon on this text, the grace that saves us is the grace that trains us. It trains us. It compels us to holiness. It is the gate into salvation, and it is the path of salvation. It's the ticket and the train. It's how you get in and how you get there. The grace that saves us is the grace that trains us. In the verse, we see that God's grace trains us in two ways. It trains us to say no, and it trains us to say yes. We're trained to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And what are those? Ungodliness is a lack of reverence or a lack of fear of God that leads to actions that, miss, that do not represent God for who he is. Is a lack of fear or reverence for God in the actions that we make in light of a distorted view of who he is. But God's grace trains us to say no. Say no to the actions and the thinking about God incorrectly. Not only that, God's grace trains us to say no to worldly passions. These are the desires that we have for sin that linger in us and that surround us. Our desire for more, whether that's money or possessions or vacations or a bigger house or respect or, or whatever more you want, God's grace trains you to say, no, I don't want anything more than Jesus. It trains us to say no to our worldly passions. It trains us to not think that we have to have what the world has to be happy because we have the richest treasure in Jesus. God's grace teaches us to say no to our ungodly actions, our ungodly thinking, and worldly desires. Essentially, it's a very holistic trainer. It changes the way we think, what we want, and what we do. 
And our saying no is not just an avoidance. It's not just a looking away. It's a detesting of that which used to allure us. We are trained to renounce. Renounce, that's a strong word. And it's great because you don't just have to like, I'm not supposed to want that anymore. You say, no, I don't want that at all. Instead, it changes our taste. It changes our taste. What was once sweet has become sour. Anger, gossip, greed, pornography, selfishness, pride, all these worldly passions, all this ungodliness becomes sour because by God's grace, he changes our heart's taste buds. We don't want it anymore. Not only that, not only are we taught to say no, we're trained to say yes. It's not just no, don't do that. It's do this. Come into this joy. To be wise, there we go. To be wise in our living. To live uprightly means that we are just in how we deal with one another. To live godly means that we have right thoughts about God. And to be self-controlled is to be wise. It literally comes from the word sober or wise living. Christian, the reason this should cause us to adore the Lord is because not only is his salvation personal, not only did his, in his salvation did he come to us and be our grace, his sanctification is personal as well. And he personally trains us to live like he did. We're not just told, you're saved, now figure it out. Or make sure you're strong enough, make sure you can obey, because if you can't, well, we're going to have to have another conversation about that. No, our sanctification, our growing, is a training that his grace does. Tomorrow, on the magical day of January 1st, it's a very magical day, in case you're not aware, It's a powerful day. It's a life-changing day. Everyone's New Year's resolutions will begin, which means, in truthfulness, everything that we knew we should have stopped in October will now stop on January 1st because we have more power on January 1st. We can keep that resolution as long as I start on the right day of the year. Not I start when I know I should. Sadly, though, the hoax of the new year, new me, wears off very quickly. So quickly, statistically speaking, by the end of January, before February 1st, 50% of all new gym memberships will be canceled. 50%. Also, by October 1st, only 22% of those who started on January 1st will still be there. That is not a good Rate of attrition is very bad. People are dropping like flies in the gym. Not because they're working out too hard, because they're not working out. And whether or not your resolution's about going to the gym, I hope the point's clear. Left to our willpower, we'll probably cancel our gym membership by February 1st. And we more than likely will not be there by October 1st. Our willpower will not succeed. But praise the Lord. The most essential transformation is not your, not your earthly health, which is important, 
not your habits or your time spent or vacations, which is a very popular New Year's resolution. Those transformations are, are important, but the most essential transformation in all of life, dead to life, ungodly to godly, unholy to holy, the transformation of salvation and sanctification, they're not left to our willpower. They are by his grace. It is his grace that saves us and it is his grace that trains us. One commentator wrote, this verse deals a death blow to any theology that separates salvation from the demands of obedience. Amen. Absolutely. You are not saved if you do not follow the lordship of Jesus. But this verse also deals the death blow to any theology that separates the demand for obedience from the active and enabling grace of God to change you and to empower your obedience. Brothers and sisters, this is a glorious truth. It is by grace that we are trained. Now one more comment on this before we move to the next point. I hope this will encourage those of us who are weary from our sin and feel untrained this morning. Training, the word there, is an active verb. It doesn't mean much in English, but what it means is that it's continuous. It's happening. It's not stopping. It's not ceasing. It's not trained you, past tense, so therefore act in accordance. It's is training you today. That is a comfort, friends. It is training us over time, which also means that he doesn't demand immediate perfection. He doesn't even expect it. Otherwise, he wouldn't train us. This is not a licensure to sin. It is a comfort in light of our failings. Training takes patience, time, and care, and our trainer knows that. So look to his grace, receive his grace, and remember that it's by his grace that we are trained to godliness. So in this present age, as the text says, in this present age, we look back. We look at the grace that saved us before. We look around us. We look to the grace that is sanctifying us today. And now we see in verse 13, we look before us to the gracious and glorious return of the grace of God, Jesus Christ. Look back at the text with me at verse 13. Actually, I'm going to start back up in verse 12. To live self-controlled, upright, in godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this verse, we see that the grace of God, it has appeared, and it will appear again. It will appear again. Paul uses the same word appear in verse 13 that he used up in verse 11, to tell us that God's grace didn't just come once, 
It's not only working in our lives today, but it's coming again. This is why Paul calls it our blessed hope. Hope here is not something that means we, we want to happen. I really hope I get that promotion. Or I really hope, hoping against hope in this one, that the Colts will make the playoffs. Actually, I don't know anything about the Colts. Regardless, um, hope in this text is not like that. It's not like that at all in the Bible. Hope for the Christian is a sure reality to come. It's an assured future awaiting realization. This hope is sure because just like when Jesus said he would die, be raised on the third day, and go to the Father, and he did, when Jesus says, I'm going away to the Father, but I will come back for you, he will. The resurrection, the fulfillment of Jesus' promises to raise on the third day is the concrete in which this hope stands upon, sure and unshakable. And when he comes, friends, when he comes, why this is a blessed hope is because when he comes, everything broken will be mended. Everything wrong will be righted. Every injustice will be punished and ended forever. Every silent struggle will be removed. Every teardrop will be wiped away. Every ounce of dementia will be not even a thought. Cancer will be gone. Childhood death will be gone. Heartaches will be healed. Depression will dissipate. And loneliness will be forgotten. Every wrong will be gone when Jesus comes again. And not only, not only will all that stuff be gone, but what he will bring, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will stand before us. The perfect imprint of God, the invisible eternal God, the radiance of his glory that will outshine the sun and cast out all darkness, the one who is, fullness, is the fullness of grace and truth, our good shepherd, the one who will call out our name, John, enter into my rest. The one who knows us will be with us forever. This is why it is our blessed hope. This is what we are waiting for, which means how we wait is not with apathy, he's coming back, not drudgery. No, we wait like children wait for Christmas. My daughter Esther, as most children, I assume, loves Christmas. Like, loves Christmas. Her waiting isn't really waiting. It's this eager expectation. All December, she's asking, is it Christmas yet? Can we open our presents yet? How much longer? When is Christmas? And when Christmas finally came, her joy of opening those gifts, she's giggling, she's so excited as she rips open packages. That's going to be us. That should be us as we wait because that will be us when he comes. The joy will be overflowing from our hearts. We will be giggling as we see him and we tear into the gift of new creation with him. But unlike children, and adults who love Christmas and get excited about Christmas. Unlike Christmas 
every year, this Christmas won't have a December 26th. We won't go back to business as usual. We won't be taking out the trash from the presents unwrapped. We won't be eating leftovers anymore. We'll be feasting forever. It is a joy that's never ending and never fading because Jesus is coming and never leaving. That is our blessed hope. And so we wait for him eagerly. We wait for him, adoring him. I don't know how you can't get that application from this. We wait for him, longing to see him. We live by grace today. We were saved by grace before, and we await the appearing of God's grace again. Now, let's look at the last work of God's grace that makes, that is worthy of adoration. Look back at verse 14 with me. Again, I'm going to start in verse 13. Our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I've been thinking about this verse all week. It has been a great encouragement to me, and I really just wanted to preach it. But the whole passage is too good not to, not to preach all of it. But this verse contains remarkable, powerful truths for us to set our minds and our hearts upon. From it, I want us to consider how and in what ways his grace has utterly changed us. First, his grace has changed us by paying the price for us. He gave himself for us. As I said earlier, he didn't send an angel. He didn't send some other created thing. He didn't send all the riches in our world. He sent all the riches of his world. He gave the eternal Son of the Father, the perfect God of God, light of light, eternal, not created but begotten, the eternal second person of the Trinity. He looked down, and on, down on us who were at enmity with him, according to Romans. We're enemies of God because of our sin. Paul's going to say we're, we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That was us. And he said, send me, Father. I will go. Me or them. The great exchange. He gave himself for us. As I said earlier, self-sacrifice, displays of love, they move us. They move us. Our hearts love them because we long to receive them. That is why the last scene in The Wonderful Life, when they're singing All Lang Syne and everybody's cheering and the banknotes getting ripped up and the arrest warrants thrown in the pot, everybody's crying. It's amazing. But what makes Christ giving himself for us 
amazing is that we're not George Bailey. We're Mr. Potter. We're envious. We're prideful. We steal authority and power that's not ours. It's God's. And we say, that's mine. We're not George Bailey. We're not self-sacrificing constantly. And it doesn't mean we're worthless. It's, it's not that we're, like, sometimes we think of that as you're worthless. No, it's not that we're worthless. We're made in the image of God. But it's that we're wicked. Our sin is wicked. We're proud. We're arrogant. And yet he gave himself for us, friends. Linger on those words. And so, in doing, he changed us. He gave himself for us. And by doing that, he changed us in two ways. First, he redeemed us from all lawlessness. The Bible makes it very clear. We not only sin, we are sinners. Meaning, we are enslaved to sin. We can't stop. We won't stop. But Jesus changes that. He paid the price himself to redeem us. We were slaves and he paid the ransom to bring us out of slavery by his precious blood. Which means you are free from sin, Christian. You don't have to sin. Sin will tell you otherwise. But Jesus paid for you so that you can say no to that thing that you hate that always leaves you disappointed, that always leaves you lacking and wanting more and confused and hurting others, his payment frees you from that. You can say no. He redeemed us from all lawlessness and he changed us from defiled to purified and precious. He cleansed us so that we could be his people in his presence. The text explains that he purified us to be his own possession. This is the same word in Exodus chapter 19. So God calls his people who were enslaved to sin and death in Egypt. He calls them out. He redeems them by the blood of the lamb to make them his treasured possession. The same word, his treasured possession. It means he, he cherishes them. He's devoted to them. His love will never, never wane. It will never waver. It never ceases. His compassion and mercy are unending for his treasured possession. God's grace, Jesus gave himself to make us that. Where he looks at us and he smiles. And he says, my child, come to me. I love you. I hold on to you. I will never let you go. You are my treasured possession. He saved us from all lawlessness so we're free from sin. He cleansed us to be his people so we're cherished and treasured. And with what result? that we will have hearts burning with love for him. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. 
What does it mean to be zealous? It means to be enraptured. It means to delight in, to savor, to serve with joy, to be satisfied with Jesus as you work for him. That's zealous. Jesus told his followers, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When he said make disciples, he said make disciples who what? Observe all I have commanded. Our love for him is only shown through our works and glorifying of who he is and what he's done. Too often, even among Christians, love is a a sense. It's gauged by how we feel. But love is so much more. It's not less, but it's more than that. It's so much more. It's an action provoked by our heart. It's a sense that produces works. Friends, we, when we look at the grace of God and we adore him, all we should want to do is serve him. One pastor has used an illustration similar to this. Husbands, why do you bring flowers to your wife? Why do you bring flowers to your wife? Because you love her. You don't, at least I hope not, you don't go into the flower shop, or if you're like me, Kroger on the way home, you don't go to buy flowers in a grumpy mood. You don't go to buy flowers begrudgingly. You love her. You want to see her face light up when she sees them when you walk through the door. You want to to see her praise their beauty. You want to sit at the table with her over dinner where they're sitting right there in the middle of the table and she just takes one more breath of their beautiful aroma. You want to see her enjoy and love the flowers that you give her. That's why you get them. That's why you buy the flowers for her. That's why you give them to her. Christians, when we see that his grace has saved us, that it trains us, it will return for us the way it has utterly changed us, what else can we do but buy him flowers? Bring him our works. Be zealous for him. Be zealous for him in our hearts, which is shown through our zeal to glorify him in our actions. As we enter another year, Chapelwood, let us remember his grace and let us, above all other things, adore our King Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you did not leave us, but that you looked upon us. That you have sent your grace to us in Jesus. We thank you that he gave himself the perfect and only suitable sacrifice for us. We thank you that he today is training us. He's changing us moment by moment, step by step. He is with us We thank you, Father, that he will return for us. Father, we pray that our hearts would long for that day. Would we want that day more than anything else because we want Jesus and to see him and to be with him more than anything else. Father, would you help us today remember that we are your treasured possession. And when we look to our king and adore him with all that we say, all that we think, in all that we do, would we be a people who are zealous for good works? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.